Anybody need one? Good. All right. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And obviously this is, um, <clears throat> this whole series that we've been doing is on marriage. It focuses on marriage, but so many of the lessons that we've looked at really focus on life. Uh, and certainly we can apply them to marriage and they're very helpful in marriage, uh, but they apply to so many other things. And, and this, this uh, lesson this morning uh, we're going to start on the first part of that this morning. Certainly can fit with so many different things that we go through in our lives. And, and the title of the lesson this morning is Unexpected Turbulence. Where obviously this whole, uh, the whole book, all of the lessons are uh, revolving around taking a journey. Uh, and unexpected turbulence deals with trials. The Bible says in James chapter 1 and verse number 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Have you ever noticed that the, I, sh I shouldn't say all, but some of, a lot of the strongest, most gracious promises in God's word are given uh, to people going through the darkest trials? Uh, if you go back and look at all the different examples of those in the Bible who went through difficult trials, some of the greatest verses that come, uh, that we use to help strengthen ourselves in the middle of a trial comes when they went through trials. You look at Job and, and some of the, some of the, uh, verses that we can get out of Job. Look at Paul. My grace is sufficient for thee. I mean, just some, some tremendous strengthening verses that come out of the middle of trials. And, and through the centuries, obviously, Christians have endured trials. They've endured persecutions. That was particularly true with the early church, with the early Christians, uh, with Nero. The Roman emperor took a lot of uh, Christians' lives. In fact, in A.D. 64, Rome was burned, and Nero blamed the Christians for burning Rome. Now, a lot of, there's, you know, uh, you've heard the story many times that, you know, Nero was playing the fiddle while Rome was burning, and, and that's, you know, just kind of a lot of uh, allusions to the way that governments are being run today, especially, but uh, Nero blamed the Christians, and because he blamed the Christians, he started a, a huge campaign of persecution against those Christians. And then in the second century, the Emperor Decius decreed that all Christians should sacrifice to the Roman gods or be killed. And of course, most of them did not bow. They did not sacrifice to those Roman gods. And so he killed tens of thousands, including 10 pastors at Crete. And you can go through Fox's Book of Martyrs. You can see many different things, uh, read many different things. And in fact, there are more Christians being persecuted today than at ever in our history. And we read a lot of stories about, you know, all of the Christians who were persecuted in the past. And, you know, there, there's, many of their stories are well known and many of them are famous, mostly because of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, part of it is that there are so many more people on the earth today than there was, you know, in the first, second, third century. But more Christians are being killed today for their faith than at any time in our history. That's trial, that's persecution, and people are going through those things. When James wrote about God's comfort, he was addressing Christians who knew firsthand what it was like to suffer persecution, to suffer through trials, and to suffer for their faith. And obviously, their trials, their burdens, their losses were real. 
the comfort that God gave them to help them overcome that suffering was real as well. And, and so it is for us. God's comfort during trials is available to us and it's sustaining. Now, there are three things, and you have them listed right there in, on the first page of your, uh, of, of your sheet there regarding the comfort that God gives us in trials. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on these, but the first thing is that our God is a God of comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. God is a God of comfort. The second thing is that the Holy Spirit is our comforter. Jesus, when he was getting ready to go back into heaven, was talking to the disciples and explaining how things were going to be when he is gone. And he said, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you all things to your remembrance. And then he says in John chapter 14 and verse 16, and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another Comforter that he may abide with you forever. Obviously, Jesus was on the earth. He was their Comforter during that time, but he was going away. And so he said, he's going to send you another comforter. It's going to be the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is our comforter. And the third thing is that we should comfort one another with God's word. And of course, the, the context of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you see in verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's an exciting passage. But then what does he say in verse number 18? Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We can comfort one another with the word of God. James, who was the one that penned the epistle of James, was actually the earthly brother of Jesus Christ. And James, James kind of went through the same thing that a lot of people went through during that time. Is this, this, is, this is my brother. You know, is, is he the savior? I mean, it'd be like Brian coming up to me and saying that he had come to take away my sins, you know? I mean, I'd have a hard time believing that off the bat, you know? But James saw everything that everybody else saw. He saw Jesus do those miracles. He saw Jesus heal. He saw Jesus forgive sins. And then he saw Jesus be killed and raised from the dead and ascend back into heaven. James became a strong believer in Jesus Christ, and of course, he was convinced that Jesus Christ was the Savior, and he accepted Jesus Christ as his own Savior. And then he became a pastor at the Church of Jerusalem. You can see that in Acts chapter 15. We're not going to take the time to look at that this morning, but James was writing to Jewish Christians who had been scattered by the persecution. And if you look in Acts, you can see the Bible says that in a lot of different places. The persecution was so strong that they had to leave or be killed. Well, then what does the Bible say? They went everywhere preaching that Jesus Christ is Lord, preaching that Jesus Christ was the way, the truth, and the life. But they knew what it was to suffer persecution. Trials were not hypothetical for them. Trials were a reality. In James chapter 1 and verse number 1 says, A servant of God and, the, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. Why is he talking about it like that? Because they had to scatter. They left. Many of them left the church at Jerusalem to escape persecution. And they went to these different places and they were preaching the cross of Christ, even in the midst of persecution. Now, during the 12th century, a, name, a man named Peter Waldo, maybe that name sounds familiar to you because of Baptist history, but he heard the gospel and he trusted Jesus Christ as a savior. Now, if you know anything about the 12th century, that was in the middle of the dark ages. 
from 500 A.D. to about 1500 A.D. was when the Catholic Church just had their stronghold and would not, I mean, the, the common person did not know how to read and understand the Bible for himself. He, didn't, he could only go by what the Catholic Church said, but Peter Waldo heard the gospel, the true gospel, and accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And he became an evangelist, traveling and preaching the gospel throughout Italy under the persecution of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, because of the severity of the persecution that was going on during the time, a lot of Waldensians, as they became known as, followers of Peter Waldo, and it was not that, oh, Peter Waldo is the Savior, but Peter Waldo started preaching the gospel. And those who became followers of his gospel and what he was preaching became known as the Waldensians. And they honestly were the true church, uh, the remnant that was still left of the church when so many people were just had turned to Catholicism and everything else. The Waldensians, uh, who ended up giving way and kind of becoming the Anabaptists, and, and for a while they were the same thing, uh, or, or you know, kind of worked together and whatever else. We don't have time to get into the Baptist history of that, but they, they, they had to live in these steep, rugged, mountainous areas and in caves and everything else, because that was the only place that they could go where they could escape persecution. You live in a house, and people, it comes known that you're a Waldensian, you were basically dead. And as soon as they could get to your house, you were killed. And so uh, they would gather on, in these caves on Sunday to worship. I mean, it was literally the underground church. Um, but this went on for over 400 years as that Waldensian church carried on the great commission of Jesus Christ, sharing the message of the gospel, holding true to what the word of God said, even in the midst of persecution. And then in 1655, now we're past the dark ages. When was the Reformation? When did the Reformation start with Martin Luther? Do you remember what the year was? When did he nail his 95 Theses to the, to the door of the church? 1517, that's right. And so 1517, here we're talking 1655. So you would think that by that time, uh, a lot of the persecution was, was gone. And it was, and it kind of lulled them into a false sense of security. It's not that they became reckless or that they, you know, whatever, but... Uh, the Duke of Savoy in 1655 sent an army into the mountains and ordered that every single one of those Waldensians that they could find be slaughtered. And historians referred to that as the Massacre of Piedmont. This is what they wrote about this. The horrors of this massacre are indescribable. Not content to simply kill their victims, the soldiers and monks who accompanied them invented barbaric tortures. Babies and children had their limbs ripped off their bodies by sheer strength. Parents were forced to watch their children tortured to death before they themselves were tortured and killed. Fathers were forced to wear the decapitated heads of their children as the fathers were marched to their death. Some of these Christians were literally plowed into their own fields. Some were flayed or burned alive. Many endured worse. Unburied bodies, dead and alive, covered the ground. Hundreds of the Waldensians fled for a large cave in the towering Mount Castelluzzo. The murderous soldiers, however, found them there and hurled them down the precipice to their death. Even the few survivors of this massacre continued following Christ, knowing it would mean persecution. Yet they clung to God's word, received his grace, and grew in faith. Their faith is a testimony that God's grace will be sufficient for any difficulty that comes into our lives. Could you imagine suffering a persecution like that? And yet they were not willing to give up their faith because of it. And so obviously we're well past when the book of James was written. 
But James was written to people who were suffering through that exact same thing. They knew what it was like to go through suffering. And you may not be facing intense persecution as a couple, um, but maybe, you're in fa- maybe you are facing an incredible time of trial in your marriage. Uh, you feel like you're running from Satan's attacks, hiding in the caves of loneliness. Watching destruction comes in, come in the lives of people that you love or facing any type of ongoing trial. Your trial could come in a lot of different ways. It might be financial. You know, you might be, uh, might be the loss of a job, finding work, bills, debts, bankruptcy, whatever it is. You know, it could be health-related. There's so many different ways that trials come in our lives. So many different ways that the devil is going to try to attack us and to allow that persecution to come. Um, maybe your trial is, is with a child that's struggling or rebelling or has left the faith. Um, unfaithful spouse, death of, death of parents. I mean, there's so many things. The list could just go on and on and on with the things that we face that are trials in our lives. And there's more possibilities than we can name here, but none of those possibilities surpass the grace of God. Nothing is greater than grace. There are, these trials have the potential to make or break not only your life, but they have the, they have the potential to make or break your marriage. Uh, how you respond. You know, they can, they can drive us to the Lord and to each other as we seek the Lord's help on these things, or they can drive us apart and they can drive us away from God. And we're going to look at a couple examples of, of both of those. But I want to look at three truths that the Holy Spirit, through James, gave to these suffering Christians in the first century that we, too, can learn And that will hopefully help us grow closer to the Lord and to each other through times of trial. And so the first thing is this, the perspective in turbulence. The perspective in turbulence. Nobody likes to anticipate turbulence. Not on planes, not in life. Um, But there's one thing that we can be sure of, and that is that we are going to face those difficult times. Right? We're going to face turbulence. I haven't done a ton of commercial flying. I've done enough of it, though, to know that many times when you're on a flight, you're going to run into turbulence. Nobody likes it because it makes you, it just get that uneasy feeling when you're up in the air and a plane starts jumping up and down and doing all this kind of stuff, you know. You, you feel like, all right, I mean, at least for me, it's not like I'm clinging to the back of my seat thinking this plane's going down, but it is always better when there's no turbulence, right? Can you help it when turbulence comes when you're on an airplane? Of course not. The pilot can't help it. Nobody can help it. It just comes. And it's the same thing that happens in a marriage. Now, I, I took flying lessons for, for quite a while when I was in high school. Mr. Forbes flew. Uh, Jenna flies, right, still. And um, I, I had 25 hours with an instructor. I had five hours solo, and then I started college, and you can't pay for both. Um, flying is expensive, and I had to make a choice. Do I need to go to college, or do I need to keep flying? And I chose college, and so uh, I had to stop doing that. But I really enjoyed it. I loved it. Somebody put together a list of advice to student pilots. Here's some of the things that they wrote. Takeoffs are optional. Landings are mandatory. Flying isn't dangerous. Crashing is dangerous. They said this, it's always better to be down here wishing you were up there than up there wishing you were down here. Here's another one. The only time you have too much fuel is when you're on fire. The propeller is just a big fan in front of the plane used to keep the pilot cool. When it stops, you can actually watch the pilot start sweating. (laughs) Some good advice. Here you go. A good landing is one from which you can walk away. 
A great landing is one after which they can use the plane again. Never let an airplane take you somewhere your brain didn't get to five minutes earlier. There you go. How about this one? Stay out of the clouds. The silver lining everyone keeps talking about might be another airplane going in the opposite direction. <laughs> there you go. If all you can see out the windscreen is ground going round and round and all you can hear is commotion coming from the passenger compartment, things are not at all as they should be. Here you go. This is, this is another one. In the ongoing battle between objects made of aluminum going hundreds of miles per hour and the ground going zero miles per hour, the ground has yet to lose. Good judgment comes from experience. Unfortunately, experience usually comes from bad judgment. Here's another one that they wrote. It's always a good idea to keep the pointy end going forward as much as possible. Here you go, Mr. Forbes. Always try to keep the number of landings you make equal to the number of takeoffs you've made. Here you go. This is the last one that they wrote. The three most useless things to a pilot are altitude above you, runway behind you, and a tenth of a second ago. Good advice, but we don't enjoy the turbulent seasons in life, and we shouldn't be surprised when they come. First Peter chapter 1 and verse number 12, and you have a lot of these verses listed there for you. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, because they're there, but the Bible says in verse number 12 of First Peter chapter 4, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. Why am I going through trials? This is crazy. No, it's normal. Part of life. Don't think it's some strange thing. Everybody goes through trials. And yet, it seems like suffering always takes us by surprise, doesn't it? We know it's going to come. We know it's going to happen. But then when it happens, it surprises us. It, it shocks us. Think about Job and his wife. In fact, I would like you to turn over to Job chapter 2. In one day, they lost everything. I mean, Job was the most wealthy man, probably the most wealthy man in the entire Bible. But especially at this time, Job was just a wealthy, wealthy man, and in one day he lost everything, including all ten of his children. Could you imagine that? To lose your house, that's bad enough. We were just talking about that, Gibbs, you know. Uh, these houses blowing up because somebody's house filled up with gas and they didn't know it. Right? It's, it's one thing to lose your house. That's bad enough. It's another thing to lose basically all of your possessions. That's even worse. But to lose all ten of your children? Couldn't imagine what that must have been like for them to go through. And Job lost his health on top of all of that, and so we get a glimpse of kind of the strain that it placed on their marriage. And in his wife's first, in fact, his wife's only recorded words, poor Job's wife, the only thing that she gets to say is something that's so terrible that I'm sure she wishes she could go and take back. But this is the only thing Job's wife said in the entire book of Job in verse number 9. Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Job's wife was allowing that trial to make her question God and even her husband in the middle of that trial. And Job responded, verse number 10, but he said unto her, thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. He didn't call her a fool. He was smart enough to not call her a fool, but he said, you sound like a foolish woman. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? See, Job continued to trust, and it seemed, obviously, that his wife came alongside of him as well, because at the end of the book of Job, you see that God gave them ten more children and basically doubled all of his wealth. But here his wife is with him at the end. And ten children later, 
and all their wealth back later. We don't have any more words recorded from his wife, but obviously she came around. God wants to bless you through your times of turbulence. He wants to, I mean, look exactly what happened to Job. Had Job given up, had Job actually cursed God and died, it would have been it. It would have been over. The trial would not have made him, and, and here's another one that the, Bible, that the Bible talks about, for when you have tried me, I shall come forth as gold. That's what Job's mindset was throughout all that trial. See, trials do place pressure on the most tender places of our hearts, but rather than allowing the trial to destroy your marriage, we need to let God use it to strengthen our marriage. That's what happens when you decide to respond to trials in faith and trust. So the first thing we see here about the fact that there's going to be times of turbulence, the perspective in turbulence is, number one, to rely on accurate data. You'll see what I mean by that in just a second. There's a lot of experienced pilots that say that the most difficult and dangerous conditions for flying uh, is being completely surrounded by fog or clouds. Now, one of the requirements as I was a student pilot was that you were not allowed to get within 500 feet of a cloud. And I never did get within more than 500 feet of a cloud, so I've never actually had to go through fog or, or, or clouds or anything like that. But maybe you've been on a commercial flight before, and, and, I, and I, even, even the flight that we were on when we went over to uh, Romania a few months back, we flew in the clouds for a while, and you cannot see anything outside of that window other than white. And so the pilot, obviously, it's, it's easy to become disoriented if you're not following your gauges if you're, not, if you're not relying on the data that's in front of you. Pilots, a lot of times, you know, they, when they get instrument rated and they start flying through these clouds, a lot of times they say you can't tell if you're climbing, if you're descending, if you're flying upside down or backwards or anything. Uh, maybe you could tell if you're flying backwards, but uh, you'd have to stop and put it in reverse, you know. But, um, in fact, um, the investigators that did the... Um, uh, investigation, I guess, of John F. Kennedy Jr. when he crashed in 1999 said that they believe that that's exactly what happened with him. He was not rated for flying through clouds and things like that, but he decided to fly anyway, and they went through a cloud. He got disoriented in this huge cloud, and, and, and they said he couldn't tell that he was actually pointed straight to the ground. He thought he was flying straight. And the next thing you know, they ended up crashing, and all the people that were on that plane with him were killed. Why is that, though? It's because... Uh, an experienced pilot knows to believe the instrument gauges over his internal sense of direction. And that's exactly what God's word is to a Christian. God's word to a Christian is the instrument panel. A lot of times our guts tells us to do something else. Our feeling, because we rely so much on our flesh, we rely so much on our own intuition and all of these things rather than on the word of God, our flesh is going to fail us. Our flesh is going to, you know... Uh, misinterpret things. The Word of God is the Word of God, and it is the rock. It's the solid foundation, and it does not change. And so we need to measure things not by our intuition, not by our instincts, but by the Word of God. And see, a lot of times what happens when turbulence comes up in life is that we feel what we feel doesn't match what God's Word declares is truth. And so the temptation that comes to us during these times is the same as uh, comes to a pilot that what he sees doesn't match up with what he feels, right? I feel like I'm going forward, but my instrument panel tells me I'm going straight to the ground. Well, guess what you better trust? <laughs> you better trust the instrument panel because it's there and it's right. And it's been checked over and over and over again to make sure that it's right. 
Couples that trust their intuition respond like Job's wife do. They look for the quickest way out of suffering rather than for seeing God's purposes fulfilled through that suffering. God does not toy with our lives. God does not play around with our lives. He's not, well, I wonder what would happen if I did this, push you into the trials. No, he does, he allows us to go through trials for a reason. And there's some purpose for the suffering. And so rather than just, oh, we got to do whatever we can to get out of this thing, see what God's purpose through that suffering is. See what God's purpose through that trial is. That's what the Word of God is talking to us about. In fact, James challenged Christians that he was writing to to respond to their times of testing based on absolute truth. And we see that in James chapter 1 and verse number 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now, if you're very familiar with that passage... It's very easy to read right through that first verse, but you know what he's, notice what he said? James literally says to consider your suffering as something that brings joy. Joy? In the middle of a trial? But that's what he says. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Our natural reaction to trials is not joy. When a difficulty descends on our lives, our reflex is usually worry, Anxiety, maybe anger. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? That's what our natural reaction is as, as humans. It's easy in those moments to lose the perspective of all that we know to be true from the Word of God and to be filled with fear or frustration. Vance Havner, he was an old preacher. He told a story about a, an, an elderly lady who was um, disturbed by a lot of the troubles that she was going through, both real and imaginary. And one of her, one of her mem members of her family told her, Grandma, we've done all we can do for you. You'll just have to trust God for the rest. She got this look of just absolute despair on her face, and she said, Oh, dear, has it come to that? And Vance Havner, in, in, in telling this story, said, It always comes to that, so why don't we begin with that? And that's, I mean, that's exactly what we should automatically do, is to rely on accurate Data. This passage tells us not to be emotionally centered Christians, but to be a Christian that fully trusts in the truths of God's word. Here's the second thing, and that is that we should view it from a biblical perspective. We have to view it from a biblical perspective. How in the world can we count our trials as joy? Well, the first is by understanding the phrase, count it. That comes from the word used in financial accounting that means to deem or to consider. Consider this. Consider the trials of your faith. It's an admonition for us basically to step back and think about the bigger picture of what's happening to us and to trust that God's working through our trials and in our lives in ways that we can't see, right? It's like putting together a 500-piece puzzle, and we are one piece in that puzzle, right? We did a 500-piece puzzle over Christmas, and it basically had four colors, Blue for the sky, white for the building, and green for the trees, and then a little bit of, you know, maybe like reddish blue on the sides for the, for the sky. That was it. And you're trying to figure out where do these pieces go. And that's exactly how we see our lives sometimes. We're one little piece in this puzzle. God is the master behind the puzzle, and he can see the entire picture, and he knows where that little piece needs to be in order to fit it perfectly in the picture. We can't see it. And so, oh, I can't tell what this is supposed to be. What in the world? This is one little piece. I can't see how this fits into anything. But God sees it. And when we look at 
everything from a biblical perspective, that helps us to step back and see things the way that God sees them. In May of 2001, Eric Weyenmeyer accomplished what only about 150 people a year accomplish, and that is to climb Mount Everest. Lots of people try. Some die on the mountain. Some get to the point where the weather is so bad they have to turn back and they can't make it up there. But Eric Weyenmeyer, in May of 2001, climbed Mount Everest. The thing that was different about Eric Weyenmeyer is that he was the first person to ever climb Mount Everest blind. He was completely blind. He, at the age of 13, or a couple years before that, actually developed a, a disease, retoskinosis, I guess is what it's called, but it basically made him lose his vision, and by the age of 13, he was completely blind. And rather than focus on what he could not do, he made the choice to focus on what he could do. And he went on and accomplished, obviously, so many different things, but his, his autobiography is called Touch the Top of the World, and he, he wrote the story of him climbing Mount Everest. Now, we cannot possibly see all of God's purposes for suffering from our vantage point. Even um, when we think we know what God's doing sometimes. We don't always know what God's doing or why he's doing those things or why he's allowing those things. But by faith, we can continue climbing and believing that God can help us to see even when we can't see the next step in front of us. Eric Weyenmeyer tells, uh, talks about this, his story in this book and says that basically the entire time, a couple things. Number one, the guys in front of him had bells on their packs so he could hear and follow the bells, but he also had ropes that were attached to these guys so he could follow behind them. He had to trust that what they told him was the truth, you know? Oh, there's a, there's a, there's a crevasse right there. Watch out for that. I don't believe you. Keep walking forward and guess where you're going to end up, Right? And that's the same thing it is with, with God in our lives. We have to trust his word, and we have to look at things from a biblical perspective. When we start seeing it only from a human perspective, then that's when we lose our vision. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle with fear. We do a lot of times, but during those times, we can choose to believe the promises of the word of God. We can reach out in faith for God's grace and believe that based on his promises, he's going to work everything out for our good and for his glory. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. The Apostle Paul learned to see difficulty from a higher perspective. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to be done this morning. Paul had what he referred to as a thorn in the flesh. He never mentioned what that thorn in the flesh was. Many people seem to think that Paul had some kind of problem with his vision, and that was what this thorn in the flesh was. And he prayed and asked God to take this thorn away from him. Not once, not twice, three times. He begged God, please take this thing away from me. And obviously, Paul was very uh, used in God's service. Um, but it seems for a time that Paul was very focused on that thorn. He wanted it gone. And that's what happens a lot of times with us. We, we tend to focus on our adverse circumstances, the things that come in our lives that are difficult. Three times, Paul brought this matter to the Lord fervently. He begged God to take this away from him. But when the Lord answered Paul, it wasn't by taking away the thorn. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse number 9, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, it wasn't by taking Paul out of the storm. It was by refocusing Paul's vision on the instrument panel. Rather than 
giving Paul that healing that he was begging God for, God gave him his sufficient grace. During life's turbulent trials, we have two choices. We can trust our feelings or we can trust God's word. And those are two very different choices. And sometimes it's very difficult to choose the one that we need to choose, and that is to trust God's word. You can trust that he's present and that he's working. When you trust the gauges, it brings that renewal of joy. Let me give you number two, and then we'll move on to this next week. The benefits of turbulence. Oh, there's other ways that we can count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the fact that you allow us to go through trials so that we can be made better, that we can be made stronger, and so that we can realize that you are the rock at the bottom. And God, I pray that you would help us to trust you in trials, not only in our marriages, but just in life. And that in our own lives, as we go through things that, that are considered difficulties to us, we trust you. Father, I pray that you would just bless our service in the next hour. Thank you for everything that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.